The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. There has been tension uh, between philosophy and theology since the beginning, and I want to look at that uh, generally and then get into some more specific uh, concerns in present-day uh, philosophy, dealing uh, really more with the analytical school in philosophy than, than uh, philosophy as it's uh, taking place now on the continent. Uh, first of all, what is philosophy? Uh, generally speaking, it's a theoretical activity which seeks to make sense of the world. Uh, historically, it's concerned itself with three uh, broad categories, metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics. Now, metaphysics uh, asks and attempts to answer the question, what is ultimate reality? It's not asking the question, what is real ultimately, which is another philosophical question, but rather, what, is, what in reality is ultimate? And that term itself was first used around 70 B.C. and attributed to uh, some of Aristotle's works by one of his uh, students. Those of you who know anything about uh, Aristotle know that he wrote a book, uh, The Physics, or Physica, to deal with the things that were physical, things that were substantial, and that pertained uh, in, a lar in large part to the senses. But he also wrote a section that he called, at times, First Philosophy, Sometimes he called it wisdom. He even spoke of the subject matter sometimes as theology. And one of his followers entitled that work Metaphysica, which uh, etymologically means something like over and above the physical. Metaphysics then deals with that which is really above and beyond, uh, to use that metaphor, above and beyond the physical. Epistemology, uh, as a term, this came into uh, philosophical jargon much later, appeared in Germany in the latter part of the 18th century, and then later into English. comes from the Greek word episteme, means a study of knowledge, asking the question uh, how we know, if we know, why we know, dealing with the nature of knowledge itself. And epistemology really has been the dominant concern of uh, philosophy since Immanuel Kant. The third uh, broad area is ethics, sometimes called moral philosophy. And here philosophy concerns itself with uh, either of two primary categories. The first category is judgments of value, in which philosophers look at judgments of approval or disapproval, rightness, wrongness of an action. And the second category is judgments of obligation, in which philosophers attempt to determine what it is we are obliged to do or not obliged to do in given situations. And these three categories, really, metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics, comprise the bulk of philosophical activity, really, since uh, its inception. So it should not be difficult, given those three categories, to see how and where philosophy will interface with theology. Any theology worth its salt will concern itself with ultimate reality. Uh, the very name theology concerns something of the study of that which relates to the Christian God in our context. The study of the things of God involves Christians in the study of things oftentimes that are abstract, things that are beyond the physical. And any theology worth its salt will be concerned with knowledge. The Bible and Christ himself places the locus of our eternal life on knowledge of him and of the Father. Christians are concerned with knowing God and knowing God's world. And so those concerns of epistemology relate also to those who are interested in theology. And obviously Christianity is concerned with what is right and what is wrong. So the subject matter of philosophy and of theology have been areas of commonality. Uh, historically. 
But I think we also have to see that philosophy, more often than not in its history, is in direct conflict, has been in direct conflict with Orthodox Christianity. Like Orthodox Christianity, philosophy has set out to say something about everything. It is a totality discipline, unlike more particular and special sciences. And like Orthodox Christianity, philosophy is a religious discipline. Now that's not surprising if you know the tradition around here because we say that life is religion and everything is religious at its root. But philosophy, I think, seems to be more explicitly religious because of its subject matter, because of the questions that it asks about ultimate reality, about knowledge, and about ethics. Because philosophy seeks to deal with all of life, it is important for us to be aware of its nuances and its influences. Now, the word philosophy can be used in at least two ways. It can refer to the system or to the result of a particular philosophy or philosopher. This is what we say when we are talking about the philosophy of Augustine or the philosophy of Kant or of Hume. Uh, it can also refer to the act of philosophizing or to philosophic activity. Now, I want to say also in, in this context that it's certainly not necessary for every Christian to be a philosopher uh, in that specialized sense. It's not necessary for every Christian to be an apologist in the, sec in the specialized sense. But I think it is necessary for those who train for ministry to be above average in their understanding of philosophy and its influences. And that's one of the reasons that we at uh, Westminster have an apologetics department. I don't know how many seminaries in the country have a department of apologetics. I haven't found another one except uh, Westminster West, perhaps. Yeah, but we think it, it's important for people training for full-time ministry to understand the influences of philosophy on the world and on our thinking and how those influences relate to theology. It is a way, then, that we better equip for ministry in our understanding of philosophy. Now, let me give you a, a, couple, a few things here about the relationship of philosophy to theology. There are at least four options. The first option you have on your outline there, philosophy is theology. That is that they're identical, uh, not so much uh, in terms of absolute identity, but more in terms of subject matter. Uh, this can be seen, for example, in early Greek philosophy in the pre-Socratics, where they uh, attempted to understand everything about ultimate reality through reason alone, including trying to understand the gods or God or the ultimate, through reason alone, so that the subject matter of philosophy just was the subject matter of theology in that context. The second option, uh, philosophy, is to be integrated with theology. Uh, there are different nuances here that uh, probably are not worth uh, looking at in, uh, in this context, but I think this tends to be the view of Thomas Aquinas. Um, Aquinas uh, was one who began, you might know, to prove the existence of God, he says, uh, through reason alone. Uh, we can discern certain things, he says, through reason alone. Such are that God exists and that he is one and the like. Now there are other things, he says, that we can't ascertain by reason alone and, and at that place we have to use revelation. Uh, such are that God is three in one, and things like that. There are mysteries, he says, and for those mysteries we need revelation, but there are things that we can understand by reason alone. And so there's a sense in which Aquinas is doing theology uh, without revelation. He is attempting to integrate uh, his uh, Christian theology with the philosophy uh, primarily of Aristotle, and secondarily uh, there's a, a good dose of Platonism in there as well. So there's, a, there's an integration idea of philosophy and theology. That, I think, is the predominant view today uh, among Christian philosophers. Uh, there's an integration idea, sometimes unconsciously, not that it's borrowing from Aquinas self-consciously, but the same idea is there, that you have your theology and you have your philosophy, and if you combine the, the two, you have Christian philosophy then. And uh, I'll talk about that in a few minutes. So there's an integration view. Uh, the third, uh, philosophy governs theology. 
Now, in this view, it's philosophy's task as the discipline that deals with the totality to determine the limits and the subject matter of theology. Philosophy assigns its place to theology and assigns theology its task. And that's what I mean by governing. Philosophy governing theology. The fourth view would be closer to my own. Theology governs philosophy. And here let me quote uh, one contemporary uh, South African philosopher, Hendrik Stoker. Stoker says, The distinction between theology and philosophy does not, according to my opinion, coincide with that between the revelation of God and His Word, on the one hand, and the cosmos, or the created universe, on the other. This is the case because on the one hand, theology also deals with God's revelation in creation, the cosmos, viewed in the light of His Word revelation. Whereas the scriptures, on the other hand, disclose not only who God is and what His relation to all things is, but also matters concerning the created universe as such. And then he concludes, because to the field of theology belong the ultimate problems, it may be called the scientia prima inter pares, the science first among equals. And there you have a situation in which theology governs philosophy because theology has the, the vehicle to understand the big picture, not just in terms of the created cosmos but in terms of all that is given to us as creatures. Which would include the, um, an understanding of who God is. Now, what are the issues for a Christian philosophy? Uh, as I see it, there are at least three central issues that a Christian philosophy must face. The first one is the question of authority. And as I read the history of philosophy, there's always been a problem with this one. How does one get at the truth about the big picture? I'm putting it sort of colloquially here. How do you get at the truth of the big picture? Is it through principles in our minds? Is it through the senses? Is it through a combination of the two? Just how do we understand everything that is? What do we as human beings have that gives us that kind of understanding? And, and as you know, the history of philosophy has uh, uh, dealt with these things in terms of rationalism, reason, empiricism, the senses, other ways as well. A combination of the two in Aquinas and Kant and others. But which of those, two, which of those sources for our knowledge is infallible? Is reason infallible? Is the empirical source infallible, or is infallibility needed in order to have a source for our understanding, a source for our knowledge, a source for our philosophy? What implication does all of that have for us? Does it mean our knowledge is always infallible if we rely on one of these sources? I don't think it means that. My senses are not infallible, but I'm fairly certain that you're here. I don't think this is a dream though I've dreamed things similar. But I don't think I'll wake up from this one. But nevertheless, my senses are fallible. They've been wrong before. So is infallibility needed? And if it's not needed, are we left with probability? It's the question of authority. What does it mean that our minds alone or our senses alone or mind plus senses can provide the needed authority for truth? What does it mean when we wrestle through these issues? The principles of our mind are the needed authority for truth. What does that mean? It's been a position in philosophy. I don't think it's been maintained well, but it has been a position. Christian philosophy has to wrestle with the implication of God's revelation for philosophy. And God's revelation includes His revelation in Scripture, but also His revelation in nature, including His revelation in creatures, human beings, as the Bible talks about in Romans 1 and other places. So the question of authority is a central, uh, crucial issue in, in Christian philosophy and has been one in the history of philosophy. 
The second one is the question of neutrality. What does it mean for philosophy that a person is either for Christ or against him? What does it mean that there are two and only two kingdoms in this world? The kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of Satan. What does it mean that there are really just two and only two worldviews? The worldview of unbelief and the Christian worldview. Now obviously all of those things have nuances, but fundamentally in Scripture there is an antithesis. There is a division. There is a separation that's foundational to everything we as Christians and as human beings ought to understand. Part of what this means is that there really is no neutrality. There is no moral neutrality. Neither is there conceptual or intellectual neutrality. It means, to come back to Thomas Aquinas, that we cannot simply assume that the reasoning of all people is of one piece, is the same. We should not assume that the non-Christian will reason the same way that the Christian will reason, because there are fundamental differences of commitment. If there's no conceptual neutrality, then the way that one goes about developing the big picture depends to a large extent on what body of knowledge or what commitment one has when the process begins. What commitment do we have when the process begins? That's the question of neutrality. The third question for Christian philosophy, by the way, these should be questions for all of philosophy, but I'm trying to focus more specifically, is the question of intelligibility. How should the Christian philosopher go about the business of discovering what is true and what is not? What is known and what is not? What is right and what is not? One of the tools that has to be used in the process of this discovery is logic. I'm almost tempted to repeat that. But instead of repeating it, I'll just say I'm almost tempted to repeat that. But once we've said that, we need to keep in mind a few things. First, there are different aspects to logic itself. Aspects that differ sometimes radically in their method for determining truth. There is the simple law of non-contradiction. It's the one you hear about most often. A is not non-A. There are formulas for dealing with conditional sentences. You learn this in elementary logic. If P, then Q. P, therefore Q. Right? Modus ponens. But even these formulas are not sufficient to deal with concepts of ultimate necessity and possibility. So there are different versions of modal logic that have been used for the purpose of attempting to determine what is necessarily true and what is possibly true. So even as we talk about logic, you see, there are nuances in the midst of that that need to be understood from a Christian perspective. But in all of these, rarely have Christian philosophers asked about the possibility or intelligibility of logic itself. That question simply has not come up very often in Christian philosophy, the one place where it ought to come up. I'm not saying it hasn't come up, it has, but not often and particularly not in our day and time today. Now, if what I've said about authority is true, and if what I've said about neutrality is true, then it seems a legitimate question uh, to ask would be, on what basis we assert the truths of logic? On what basis do we say that those truths are true, if they are? It's also legitimate to ask, is there a Christian logic and a non-Christian logic? Now, don't misunderstand that one. That doesn't mean that there's an element over here and something totally, completely different over here. And they're both called logic, but there's nothing uh, similar. It just means that we need to ask as Christians, how does the Christian understand logic, even if the formula is the same? What's the basis, and how does the non-Christian understand it? And I think at this point, in Christian philosophy today, particularly in the analytic tradition, there has been woeful neglect of asking those kinds of questions. What is the basis for logic? Such neglect, as we'll see in a minute, that logic has been used to determine the very character of God, whether or not Revelation agrees with it. 
and that's where trouble comes. Which leads to the fourth point. How is Christian philosophy doing? Well, uh, in one sense, as I say on the outline there, it's doing very well. There was a time in the not-too-distant past when it was foolish in philosophical discussions to bring up theism as a viable option. It was determined by the philosophers that any discussion about religious matters was without meaning, so that any God talk was obviously meaningless. But now it seems that discussions not only about theism generally, but about the character and nature of God are rampant, particularly in the Anglo-American tradition. There's even a large and influential society that has been recently established, I think in the 70s, called the Society of Christian Philosophers. Very influential group. So I think on one level, we can be encouraged about the present state of Christian philosophy, especially when we compare it to uh, the not-too-distant past in this country. But having said that, and I wanted to say that first, there are reasons, I think, for deep, deep concern about the present state of Christian <laughs> philosophy, and let me just mention a few of those. First of all, there is no attention given in Christian philosophical discussions to revelation as a basis for authority. Now, I'm speaking here about people who, whose trade it is to do philosophy and people who have named the name of Christ. So that's what I, that's what I mean when I'm saying Christian philosophy. I'm not talking about theologians who dabble. I'm not talking about people who are interested. I'm talking about people whose profession is to be a philosopher and who also make clear that they are uh, Christians. And there is no attention given in those kinds of discussions, in those circles, to revelation as a basis for authority. As a matter of fact, oftentimes the opposite is maintained. One Christian philosopher has noted recently that any appeal to revelation as divine authority automatically excludes the possibility of doing philosophy. Automatically excludes the possibility of doing philosophy. Now I know there are different ways to interpret what that means, but it's a warning signal when I read that sort of thing. Yeah, this philosopher may be of Aquinas' stripe and may simply be saying that one does not need revelation to do philosophy. Maybe it's just pure integrationist kind of, of uh, philosophy. But can a Christian philosopher really afford to negate the revelation of God in such a way? What authority will the Christian philosopher have if revelation is denied? If logic is the final arbiter of truth, then what gives logic that authority? And if nothing does, then who says it's inherent? So the, the first problem that I see is that revelation is completely ignored. And I think this goes back to my point four above about theology and philosophy. It means that theological concerns are ignored, or at least set aside, at least suspended for philosophical discussion. And I think that can be dangerous. There are discussions going on now in Christian philosophy about how God's knowledge relates to man's choice. Now, these are not new discussions. These discussions have been going on at least since the Apostle Paul. But some of the conclusions reached by Christian philosophers are disturbing. One philosopher has concluded, after much sophisticated discussion on the matter, that we must define now God's omniscience in a way that allows for truths which it is logically impossible for God to know. We need to understand now that the omniscience of God must be defined in a way that allows for truths, truths out there, which are logically impossible for God to know. Now, he works this out very logically, and, and as far as I can tell, his arguments are sound. They're just wrong. That's my uh, parenthetical opinion which I'm not supposed to give yet. So also notes one Christian philosopher after rejecting the notion that God is eternal, he says, we can continue to speak of God's having chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. We can continue to say that, he says, in spite of the fact that it was neither before the foundation of the world nor at any other time that God did such a thing. So that the Christian philosophers are concluding now 
that we, we can speak about such things that we've spoken about traditionally as long as we understand that they either mean nothing or mean the opposite of what they say. That's where logic has brought them. Another Christian philosopher decided to ask the question about God's simplicity. Now this is a doctrine that's been taught in Reformed theology, even as far back as Aquinas. And it states it in various ways, but it states that God is not composed of parts. He's not divisible according to his attributes or his character. It's one of the basic elements in the Westminster Confession of Faith to which uh, our faculty subscribe. Now, why would that be important to question God's simplicity? Now, why would it be important to affirm God's simplicity? One reason is because we would not want to see the Trinity as three persons composing the person of God. But each one is one and distinct at the same time. In other words, we want to understand God in a way that He is not divisible essentially. And that includes as triune. Furthermore, we would want, not want to see love or goodness as added to the character of God, but we want to see God as essentially good and essentially love. Goodness is who He is. It's not that you have God here and goodness out here, and then God as He exists takes goodness to Himself, but God is good, essentially, and He defines what goodness is. That goes all the way back to Plato, right? Is the good good because God said it is, or did God say it is because it's good? We hold that God is good ultimately, and he defines goodness. So this doctrine of simplicity has been phrased theologically as God being identical with his attributes. He thinks what he is, and he is what he thinks. Now, um, let me, uh, are you overwhelmed already, or can I dive a little more? Let me dive a little more. The reasoning goes something like this. If God had a property P accidentally, that is, if God had it, but he could have lacked it, then he could not be identical with it. If he were identical with it, it would be impossible that he exist and be distinct from it. But some Christian philosophers now have wanted to question that. They have reasoned this way. And here's the reasoning, and again it's sound. If God is identical with each of his properties, then since each of his properties is a property, God is a property. Accordingly, God has just one property, himself. And if God is a property, then he isn't a person. Now, if you're a Christian sitting in here and you've read your Bible more than 15 minutes, that should bother you. This kind of reasoning denies the simplicity of God. It says, for example, that if the doctrine of the simplicity of God is true, then God is not a person, but a property. But then this dilemma turns on the independence of God, what we call sometimes the aseity of God, God existing in and of himself. If God is not identical with his attributes, then there are attributes that exist independently of God over which he has no control. Goodness, love, pick an attribute. And the fact of the matter is, say some Christian philosophers, that the truth of the proposition, all things green are colored, is outside of God's control. You get it? Or are you lost? You see the dilemma. If God is identical with his properties, with who he is, with his essence. If he is what he thinks and he thinks what he is, and God is love, and love is a property, and God's identical with that property, God's not a person, he's a property. Therefore, some of these people conclude, these Christian philosophers, there must be God here and attributes here that God then takes to himself, and there are certain things, say these philosophers, over which God has no control. Trying to maintain now the personality of God the conclusion being that there are things, there have to be things out there, eternal, necessary truths over which God has no control. The proposition, all things green are colored, is one of those things over which God has no control. But, say some orthodox apologists, every truth is within God's control because everything is within God's control. 
Well, we're told by Christian philosophers, if every proposition is within God's control, then it is within His power to cause it to be true or to cause it to be false. That is, if it's within God's control, the proposition, then it's within His power to make it true or to make it false. That's what it means to be within His control. But this entails, say these philosophers, that the proposition God is good could be caused to be false. There were other seminars you could have gone to. I mean, this says the state of Christian philosophy. You see, that entails that the proposition God is good, if God has ultimate absolute control over that, it entails that that proposition could be caused by God to be false, say these philosophers. It entails a less emotional proposition. It entails that the proposition, that is a square circle, could be caused by God to be true. It means, you see, according to these philosophers, that there are no absolutely necessary truths because every truth, if it's over God's control, is contingent on whether or not God chooses it to be true or to be false. But we might want to say with Descartes that these truths are truths that God sustains and affirms. But then that entails that it is within His power to cause such truths to be false, and we're back where we started. So, we're told by these Christian philosophers, the conclusion is that necessary truths are not within God's control. He could not bring it about that 2 times 4 equals 9, because 2 times 4 equals 8 is a necessary truth, uncreated because it never began to exist. It is an eternally necessary truth, and therefore outside of the control of God. Now again, I don't think in any of these arguments that there is one logical fallacy. On neutrality, number four. Some Christian philosophers today want to argue for a neutral area in which Christian and non-Christian agree. And again, this has been the case through the history of the church and through the history of uh, any philosophy that's purported to be Christian. Some want to affirm that there is religious neutrality in areas delineated different ways, but areas delineated as the deliverances of reason, logic, and mathematics. Now, I think on one level, there can be no question that there are certain areas that are less obviously hostile to the gospel than others. And if we work primarily from the standpoint of just observation and empirical evidence, then it seems that the non-Christians 2 times 4 equals 8 is relatively innocent. That doesn't seem to attack the essence of the gospel. The non-Christian next to you says, you know, 2 times 4 is 8. That doesn't seem like it's an attack on the gospel. So, so there is some intuitive appeal, I think, to this neutrality uh, postulate, this neutrality suggestion. But what happens if we turn to Scripture? What happens if we begin to think through the truth of the effects of sin on the mind and the activity of sinful people? What happens if we put logic and mathematics within the context of what Scripture tells us the world is like? And what Scripture tells us unbelief is like? And what Scripture tells us Christianity and the Christian faith should be like? It seems at that point that we're forced to conclude that neutrality really is not to be found. That in principle, there's no neutrality. And it's principles here that we're discussing. Yet, neutrality seems to be one of the givens today of Christian philosophy. There are areas in which we simply never disagree in principle. That's neutrality. Now, um... That, most of what I've talked about so far is on a uh, more or less metaphysical kind of plane uh, in, the, in the area of metaphysics, and I'll, I'll stop there for just a second to see if you have uh, questions before I move on to uh, epistemology, which would be all we'll have time to deal with. We won't get to ethics. Any questions or uh, comments so far? Uh, I think what I'm saying, if I were going to go back on that whole discussion of uh, necessary truths and the uh, attributes of God, I think what I would have to say is that necessary truths have their substance as created in terms of the way that we know them and as uh, conforming to the character of God as He is revealed. Therefore, the reason they cannot change is because of who God is, not because of some intrinsic attribute that they have called eternal necessity that we've imposed on them which is an abstraction, and I don't think it can be shown.
Heininger, um, Walter Storff, uh, William Alston, people like that, but there's a, a, a list of people in that, uh, who, who, who see themselves in that tradition, uh, most of whom are associated somehow with the Society of Christian Philosophers. They all tend to have different uh, views on some of these things. I'm not trying to lump everyone together. I'm just trying to say, here are the things they're working on. Uh, William Hasker is another one whose argument I've used in these uh, papers, in this, in this presentation, who would think quite differently from Plantinga. But one of the things I'm trying to show is that in Christian philosophy, because, we've because there's been an ignoring of revelation, here are some of the conclusions we reach, which are at least against the tradition of Orthodox Christianity. Now, since I'm not Roman Catholic, that's not, you know, I'm not, I haven't said a whole lot there, even though, because I'm Reformed, I have said a bunch. That doesn't make, mean that it's wrong if it's against the, the tradition, but we need to think very carefully if we're going to um, say these sorts of things uh, in the context of Christian philosophy. We're used to hearing these things in the context of non-Christian philosophy, obviously, when they want to wrestle with theism generically, but now we have Christian philosophers who are saying these kinds of things, and I think redefining God as they do their philosophy. That's the danger that I see. Um, let me move on to epistemology here for just a few minutes. I'll try to leave a few more minutes for questions, I think. I may not. Now, in, in this area, I want to uh, look particularly at, um, at, at uh, the, the kind of thing that uh, Plantinga particularly has developed in, in his... Uh, uh, um, Christian epistemology you, used to be called New Reformed epistemology, and now I think it's just generically a Christian. Um, and and one of the things that is is attempted here is is an attempt to answer the evidentialist objection to belief in God. The evidentialist objection to belief in God, he sums up in the words of W. K. Clifford, uh, ethicist from last century. To sum it up, it is wrong, Clifford says, to sum it up, it is wrong always, everywhere, and for anyone to believe anything upon insufficient evidence. Um, that's uh, part of the evidentialist objection, and then that moves on to the existence of God. If you have no sufficient evidence for the existence of God, then it is wrong always, everywhere, and for anyone to believe in the existence of God. Now, the standard answer to this objection has been to mount propositional evidence in response to such a charge. Thus, we have things like the historic atheistic proofs and other variations of those. But these proofs, I think, have been woefully inadequate to meet the goal they set for themselves. There are problems in these proofs of assumed neutrality, which we've already looked at, borrowing from the unbeliever's system in order to prove theism, etc. So these proofs, I contend, have failed as proofs, uh, and they also compromise the Christian position. Now, that doesn't mean they failed in their effects. That doesn't mean they haven't been useful. I'm not talking pragmatically here, but I'm talking principially. They've compromised, I think, the Christian position. So, in the face of that kind of failure, Christians have resorted to a kind of a bumper sticker apologetic, which says, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Now, that apologetic really doesn't work in the face of the evidentialist objection for a number of different reasons, not the least of which is that you can put it on a bumper sticker. In the face of this uh, problem, a group of Christian philosophers have sought to develop an epistemology that takes its cue from a foundationalism. Has this effort been successful? Well, let's see what the effort is. What is foundationalism? Foundationalism is a theory about the structure of knowledge. You know, when we talk about rationalism and empiricism, we're, we're, we're referring there primarily to the source really, of, of knowledge. And in foundationalism now, we, we're in a different arena because we're talking about the structure, the, the building. What does knowledge look like? Structure of knowledge. And, and foundationalism seeks to explain how our different beliefs hang together or relate to each other. And in this kind of structure of foundationalism, beliefs are divided up into two categories. Properly basic beliefs and inferential beliefs. Inferential beliefs are those that inferred from other beliefs. That seems to be non-controversial. Properly basic beliefs are controversial, if not for their criteria, at least for their content. Now, in foundationalism, in historical foundationalism, a belief is properly basic if it is self-evident or evident to the senses or incorrigible. 
That's historically the way it's worked out. That is, a, it's properly basic. That means it's not inferred, but it's there as a basic belief, and properly so, or some would even say rationally so, it's there as a basic belief if it is self-evident, evident to the senses, or incorrigible. That is, it's, it's impossible to show that such a belief is false, incorrigibility. Now, in order to understand what it means that a belief is properly basic, we need to understand what it means for a belief to be justified according to this tradition. Because this tradition seems to be comfortable in the context of a justified, true belief account of what knowledge is. That is, that you can, you can have a true belief, and that true belief is not knowledge, unless that true belief is somehow justified. You're, you're justified in holding it, and justification is a huge issue, not only in theology and the Reformation, but in, in epistemology in the 20th century. Um, so, uh, I can believe something truly, but I may not know that thing. I can believe right now that tomorrow it will be 65 degrees. If it turns out to be 65 degrees tomorrow, it was a true belief that I had. I didn't know. I don't know that tomorrow it's going to be 65 degrees. There needs to be a justification for the belief that I have in order for that belief to be knowledge. Now, foundationalism says that there are certain beliefs that we hold that are rational and justified because they are basic. No criteria given for their justification, only that they must be justified, because if they're not, then there can be no inferential beliefs. So in that way, properly basic beliefs are a kind of transcendental category. They are there by virtue of the impossibility of the opposite, at least the, so the argument goes. Now, the impetus behind this Christian epistemology, taking its cue from foundationalism, has been to argue that the category of properly basic beliefs, those that are not inferred, those that are just there, that that category should be expanded, greatly expanded. Particularly, that belief in God should be included among those beliefs that are properly basic. So that the conclusion is one may rationally believe in the existence of God without need of a defense for such belief by way of propositional evidence. In other words, you have all these properly basic beliefs. Why not add belief in God to that set of properly basic beliefs? The argument goes something like this. If foundationalism is true, or at least in aspects of it, then there are beliefs which we all hold, which themselves are believed without propositional evidence or any other justification. Among those beliefs are perceptual beliefs, memory beliefs, and beliefs in other minds. What propositional evidence do we have for, I see a tree, or I had toast for breakfast this morning, or that you, like me, are a person? We may have some kind of evidence for these, but there's no evidence of abiding character, no propositional evidence. Yet we all believe these things, in the right kinds of circumstances, and we would be foolish not to believe them. Now the question comes, in this kind of Christian epistemology, why it is that belief in God must be, according to the evidential objection, why is it that belief in God must be among the inferred beliefs? Why can it not be among the properly basic beliefs? And the argument is that it must be, or it can be, among the properly basic beliefs, for at least two reasons. The first reason is that we already have a belief category among properly basic beliefs that will accommodate belief in God. And that category is belief in other minds. God, who is himself an other mind, could also fit within an already established and basically accepted and acceptable category of belief within this kind of foundationalist structure. In other words, belief in other minds is a properly basic belief. Why not include God? He's another mind. We have no propositional evidence for belief in other minds. I can see you. I can, I can see evidence that you're there. I can't prove propositionally, the argument goes, that you're another person. So if we can't prove the existence of other minds, yet we must believe it in order to function, right? I wouldn't be standing here talking if I didn't think people were in here. Well, I might be. I'd be strange if I did, if I did that sort of thing. So why not add uh, belief in God as another mind to that kind of category? First reason. Second reason is interesting from, from a number of perspectives, but the second reason given particularly by Planninga is the sensus divinitatis, the sense of divinity. 
that God has implanted in us. And planning, it says, if this census or this tendency, as he likes to think of it, is actualized in someone, then we can believe in God, and properly so, without the need for any propositional evidence. So he says we have a tendency to believe in God. We're made that way. That's what the census divinitatis is, and that's why it was initially called a new reformed epistemology, because there was at least, there was at least an allusion to, uh, to Calvin. If we have this census divinitatis, then, you see, uh, it's, it's natural to include something like belief in God among properly basic beliefs because we're made to believe that sort of thing. Uh, if we walk by and we uh, see the beauty of a flower and we say, oh, that flower uh, reveals the character of God and we believe in God, we're made to do that. We don't need propositional evidence for that kind of belief. That's interesting from, from a number of perspectives, I think, that we can't uh, go into, really. But uh, at that point, you see, it seems we've got to um, rely to some extent on revelation, don't we? I mean, there's at least an, an implicit appeal to what Scripture teaches about the way that we're created. Uh, it's, it's implicit, and in, in, in planning appeals uh, to Calvin, uh, so that the authority simply resides uh, with Calvin. But uh, what would happen if he appealed then to revelation? Uh, I think one problem with that view, by the way, is that the census divinitatis is more than a tendency according to what Scripture teaches us. Uh, I think it has actual content. I don't think it fits within the sort of uh, potentiality-actuality scheme. Now, uh, we don't have time to discuss uh, all of the problems uh, with uh, this kind of approach, though there, I think there are probably some promises in this kind of approach. But I think one of the problems, at least, is that belief in God, if it's included as a properly basic belief, is included there only secondarily. I haven't seen uh, an argument that um, um, evident, the things that are evident to the senses can be excluded for us as properly basic beliefs. I mean, if we uh, function that way, uh, then we really don't know if we're walking up the steps or if I'm in this room or in, in uh, Manhattan somewhere. We just don't, if we don't uh, have evidence uh, from the senses, then we really um, have problems with our touch with reality. And I haven't seen uh, planning or anyone else argue that those are optional, but belief in God is optional as a pro properly basic belief. And I think it's, uh, it's parasitic. That belief in God structured this way is parasitic on the real properly basic beliefs. So that it doesn't, it's not just simply a parity, as some have tried to say. It's not just simply on the level of belief in other minds, but it's parasitic to that. So in that sense, it would be tantamount more to UFO belief. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I believe in UFOs. I have no propositional evidence. Uh, but I believe in other minds, and, uh, and, and extraterrestrial creatures have other minds. And I sort of have an innate tendency to believe this way anyway. So I can believe in other minds and E.T. E and all sorts of things, and you don't have to, but I believe in that, see, because I've already got a category of properly basic beliefs. But that belief becomes secondary. I can give that up without losing touch with reality in the way that this structured. This is structured. You, belief in God you can, is just simply, uh, I think, uh, relativistic in that way. Uh, you can give it up or you can hold it if you want to. Yes, sir. Right, but see, uh, planning is wanting to say that belief in God is not universal. And that's why what I'm trying to say, and see, because, because and he's, he's already said it doesn't need evidence. Now, part of what Anselm, Anselm is saying is, uh, let's, let's look at the evidence, look at the, let's look at the justification for the universality of it, but that's already excluded in terms of belief in God. This is Alvin planning at Notre Dame University. Because the only thing he appeals to is his intuition. He says, it just doesn't seem to me that that works, the great pumpkin objection. The great pumpkin objection is, suppose I have a natural tendency to believe in that. And suppose I include that among properly basic beliefs. Why won't that work? And he says, well, you can, you can look around and inductively uh, gather this and gather that. And as you do that, and you combine that with the census divinitatis, you get belief in God and not the great pumpkin. And then he, and then he concludes, there being no great pumpkin. Now, see, at that point, he's, he's, uh, he's stealing from the Christian position. He, had, he hadn't done that in the beginning, and he just, he just took our stuff and used it for his argument. But he, he really, it's, it's, uh, he doesn't answer the great pumpkin objection. 
And that's why, in my opinion, I don't know this for sure, but that's why he's changing his argument from a more relativistic justification that is a permissible justification to the theory of proper function. So that if your mind is functioning properly, objectively, then, and you have all these other things that he outlines there, uh, truth conduciveness and, and those sorts of things, um, then belief in God is properly basic. But then how do you define that? Who says my mind's not functioning properly? It's got to be more than a majority vote, I think. Well, he sure wants to stay within the Christian theistic tradition, generally speaking, when he talks about God. Um, he makes that fairly clear in some of his articles. Uh, he's talking about the Christian God. He was raised in the Christian Reformed Church. He's not trying to do something just simply generic. Um, but I think there are problems there, and part of the problem has been the attempt to redefine who God is and other things like that. Yeah, I think that's right. But see, I think that's part of the problem in philosophy. If you ignore Scripture, I mean, I say sometimes facetiously, I'm on tape now, so I probably didn't say this, but I say sometimes facetiously that if Planning had gotten a theology degree, he would revolutionize the world philosophically. But I think if you, under, if you learn what Scripture teaches about Revelation, you see that Revelation is something that God continually imposes on all people, and that it's not simply a contentless sort of tendency, but it's knowledge of God, and that that is what's out there all the time, that provides a lot of answers in terms of epistemology, I think. And then you combine that with God's written revelation. And it's not that we simply do this because we're blank slates, but it's because we know by, our cons by who we are as created beings, we know the God of the Bible. We don't know that there is a God. We know as creatures the God of the Bible. And I think when, you know, I think when Paul's that specific, I think if Christian philosophers would look at that, they wouldn't be as popular perhaps, uh, but I think they would be more in tune with uh, the Christian tradition and, and, more importantly, Scripture. Yeah, and I think uh, philosophically what we ought to say to Christian philosophers is we ought not try to take our tools and then prove something about the Trinity. We've got to start with the Trinity and then ask the questions about reality given who God is. Uh, and that we're just not starting that, that way at this point. Well, in the way that you stated it, it's not terribly different. Uh, Planning has got a little article called Advice to Christian Philosophers. It was his, uh, you know, his uh, inauguration lecture at, uh, at Notre Dame, where he argues that, we, that as Christians, we've got to quit taking all the vogue uh, stuff that philosophers do, and we start with God as Christians, and then we move on. Now, just as that stands, that sounds good. But my problem is the way that it fleshes out in his own system. What does he mean by starting with God? Well, he's trying to argue for God on the basis of neutral terrain over here that he has in common with non-Christians and get himself into the non... He wants to be as acceptable as the non-Christian. See, and that's been the problem with the, with the traditional theistic proofs. The tra traditional theistic proofs have said, I want to give a cosmological argument that makes my belief as acceptable as yours. So what I'm arguing for is acceptability of irrational unbelief. See, and I think that's where planning is going with it. I think that's the framework that he uses. Uh, now, you know, it, it appeals to me greatly when he says, let's start with God, because I think he's got something there. But how does that work out? Uh, he should have read more Doiverd at Calvin and, and, and more Van Til at seminary. Well, my time's up. Thank you for your patience, and thank you for uh, coming.